Um, well, I, I wanted to open today with a question for you. I think coming off the back of that, this um, praise of creation that we get to join in, kind of landing with a bump, really, I want to know, is everything going to plan in your life? Is everything going to plan in your life? Um, it's wonderful if it is. If so, that's, that's just great news. But, but I'm sure for many of us, actually... Things are not straightforward, not nearly as straightforward as it seems like they ought to be, right? As followers of the God of the heavens and the earth, as um, the saved people of Jesus, shouldn't things just be straightforward in a straight line? We're marching on and it's all working out. Plans you had, even plans which you thought were maybe God's plans, they just don't seem to be working out for you. That's kind of, I guess, that was our story maybe nine months ago. We thought we were going to be here. Uh, we thought we were going to be in Oxford. We thought we were going to be uh, a part of a, a church in the centre, Trinity Church. Uh, we thought we were getting ready to buy a house. Uh, we thought this was God's plan. We thought it was all going very smoothly until we got right up to the wire. And at the last moment, we discovered we couldn't raise the mortgage. We couldn't buy the house. And the whole thing started coming unpicked. Was everything going wrong? Has God's plan failed? Has something gone wrong there? Have you ever been in that place where everything just doesn't seem to be working out like you thought it was. You thought you knew what the plan was. You thought you knew the direction things were going in, and somehow, it's just not working together. Well, if that's been you, um, you're in good company, because Paul has been there too, very much so. That's the story we're going to look at tonight. And what we're going to do is we're going to watch Paul uh, in the middle of this sort of crisis, really, in what looked like it was God's plan, in what looked like it was God's straightforward purposes and next steps. What does Paul do and what can we learn from that? Just to give you a little bit of context, so we've been studying the book of Acts in the evenings for a long time. Acts is the, the story, really, of how the church went from being 12 scared guys hiding in a room to one of the greatest, biggest organizations on earth reaching everywhere. Acts takes that story from the foundation through Jerusalem, the city that they start in, Judea, the country surrounding the city, Samaria, the next country in line, and the Acts goes all the way to the ends of the earth. That's where it says the gospel is going to go. And Paul is a critical part of how the good news about Jesus goes from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And we're going to pick up with Paul as he's uh, on a Jerusalem trip. He's coming back to Jerusalem after he's been on mission. If, I don't know how your Bible lands geography is. Mine is really not fantastic. But roughly... So Paul, Jerusalem's here, and Paul's been basically everywhere. And as, after he's been almost everywhere, he's coming back through Jerusalem, hoping to go onwards to Rome. And what, why is he hoping to go onwards to Rome? Well, he says, well, I'm done in the east. Finished there, preached the gospel to absolutely everyone. There's nothing left for me to do there. It's time for me to go to the east. And he's going to pass through Rome on his way to the east, which... Spain, at, the, at those days, basically was called the ends of the earth. That was about as far as, as you could go. Um, Paul, here, is also quite literally on a mission from God. Acts 20.22 tells us that, compelled by the Spirit, Paul says, I am going to Jerusalem. He's compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. So, is Paul in God's plan as he arrives in Jerusalem. Absolutely, absolutely he's in God's plan. This is exactly what God was asking him to do. And last week we looked at Paul in the temple. Paul went to the temple in Jerusalem to try and 
um, present himself as an observant Jew, present himself as keeping the rules and the regulations and staying with his old people. But there's a riot. Some Jews from Asia, this peace he's been in over, planting churches, have caught up with him. And they say, they say, this is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he's brought Greeks into the temple and defiled the holy place. And there's this riot. And they rush him out of the temple. They pick him up planning to kill him. They close the doors of the temple. And the Romans ride in and rescue Paul. And uh, as they carry him away, he pleads for another chance. He says, give me another chance. I want to talk to these people still. So they say, fair enough, you can have a speech. And, and he starts out talking about his story and who he is, how he's a Jew, he's a faithful Jew like them, how he was raised with them, talks through their story, and he gets all the way up to what God has told him to do, his calling. I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And again, the same riot picks right back up, and the Romans dive in again and rescue this Paul. They want to know what's going on as well, so they get ready to um, beat him and whip him And then at the last moment they discover Roman citizens were not allowed. There are legal procedures just like there are today. They can't shortcut them. So what is going on here? What I want to do is read through the next chapter. We're basically going to read most of Acts 23 and then look at the story and see what we can learn. So let me read for us. It's on page 1120 uh, in the Bibles. I'm going to read from 22 verse 30. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and he ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. And then he brought Paul and he set him before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I filled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. And at this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I didn't realize he was the high priest. For it's written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I'm a Pharisee, descended from the Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees on the one hand and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there's no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits. But the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him back into the barracks. I'm going to stop there for a minute. So you get another Roman rescue. But I think there's a few questions for us to ask as we read that. So Paul's taken into this Jewish leadership assembly, the Sanhedrin, the elders, the leaders of their people, and he only gets to say, One sentence of his defense before there's outrage and riot again. What is it that makes the high priest so furious? It's obviously Paul's words, his claim, his claim to be an obedient Jew. He says, my brothers, I fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. 
Now remember that all the people there would have been there yesterday as well. They would have heard what Paul has said and about where he feels like he has been sent to the Gentiles. So exactly the same hot button issue um, is, is, is coming up again. There's this exclusivity, this specialness of God's chosen people that's under threat. But at the same time, the um, Josephus, one of the um, ancient Jewish kind of historians, tells us that Ananias is also a thoroughly nasty bloke. Uh, he has nothing nice to say about him at all, and all sorts of bad things. So perhaps he's just woken up in a bad mood or planning on sorting out this trouble. But then if you look at the way Paul reacts, and that's surprising as well. I was trying to not overdo it on the tone, but give a sense. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. I mean, those are pretty sharp words, aren't they? Does that sound like turning the other cheek? Does that sound like the guy who tells us he's put up with all these sorts of opposition and beatings and oppression? Why is Paul's reaction like this? Is this just human? Has Paul just come to the end of his tether and frankly he's had it? Think he had a bad night's sleep? And he's like, Rah! Some people, um, great historical people like Augustine, thought maybe this is a prophecy. God will strike you referring to the end of the Jewish nation in Jerusalem, which was coming in uh, just a few years. But that doesn't really make sense when it goes on and Paul says, oh, I wouldn't have said that if I knew you were the high priest. So I don't think it's really something spoken against the high priest. I think really you're just seeing Paul frustrated at the hypocrisy. This whole Jewish assembly is all about enforcing the Jewish law. Enforcing that things are done strictly to order. That's why they're so cross with Paul, because they think he's breaking this law. But at the same time, what they're doing in commanding him to be struck is breaking their law. Their courts, just like ours, have this innocent until proven guilty assumption. That's kind of the default, is until something's proven against you, there's nothing wrong. So it really was um, a, a breach of the law to strike Paul when he hasn't even done anything. Plus this high priest also was a whitewashed wall. That, that metaphor really speaks about um, a, a wall that's crumbling and tottering and that's in danger of falling down, but you just paint it a nice white colour and it looks all shiny and new and you don't really know what's underneath. So the, 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 the high priest was fairly critiqued as being a whitewashed wall. And Paul also says, oh, I didn't know he was the high priest. Can that really be true? Do you think Paul could really not have figured out who the high priest was? Doesn't the high priest get to wear a special hat? and special robes and things like that. Isn't Paul a trained Pharisee who spent years and years in Jerusalem? Didn't he want to know how things work? Well, he's been away a long time, more than ten years, I think. And it probably is an informal session called together quickly, because the Romans aren't looking really for Paul to be judged. They're looking for, what's going on? What's the problem? What's everyone upset about? So maybe it's just been quickly assembled, and people aren't in their right robes, and it's all a bit chaotic, and Paul's like, who said that? And uh, then... Um, is embarrassed, frankly, at what he's said against this high priest. Sorry, there are lots of questions in here, aren't there? But I just wanted you to not sweep them under the rug for you. There are questions here. Um, and then, when Paul notices these two parties, these two factions, the Sadducees, these are the kind of um, natural realists of today. There is no resurrection, no spirits, nothing supernatural going on. It's just life. And uh, they're the guys who got on pretty well with the Romans. And the, the Pharisees who believe in all these things. Paul knows there are these two parties. And he shouts, it's on account of the resurrection of the dead. He's just trying to start a fight. What's he trying to do? Cause a distraction so he can get out of there alive? No. No, that's not fair. Um, because 
What Paul talks about, the hope of the resurrection of the dead, really is the key that he's on trial for, that really is the key issue. It's the linchpin of our faith. Paul says it himself in in, uh, his letter to the Corinthian church. He says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And he goes on to say, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. So resurrection really is the critical piece So it's right of Paul to point this up as the critical thing that's causing trouble. It's also really important for him to establish that Christianity is in the line of Judaism. It's really important in the Roman Empire because Judaism has this special status. It's got the stamp of an approved religion that it's okay to follow without the Romans trying to kill you. Um, And if they can show that Christianity is just a valid type of Judaism, if it stands in line with Judaism, then Christianity gets to inherit this allowed religion status. And the Pharisees say, there's nothing wrong with this man, he's keeping our law. So in a way, Paul's accomplished something so important right there. He's established that Christianity is an allowed, a legal religion in the Roman Empire. And that's important for Paul, but it's also important, you have to remember who's writing Acts and who it's written to. So Luke, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke, also wrote Acts. And who's he writing to? He's writing to a guy called Theophilus. What's his proper name? Theophilus. It is Theophilus. Theophilus. There's a lot of people speculating that he's a significant um, Roman cultural figure, that he's an important guy in Rome. So showing him that Christianity is in this allowed religions category is also important. So Paul isn't just trying to stir up a fight and get out of trouble. He's trying to make a crucial Uh, an important point here. But look at what happens next. The following night, in verse 11, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. But the next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and they said, we've taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin, petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of the plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. And then Paul called on one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander, he has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander and the centurion said, Paul, the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. Well, the commander took the young man by the hand. He drew him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? He said, some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They've taken an oath not to eat or drink until they've killed him. They are ready now waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you've reported this to me. Then he ordered two of his centurions, then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. So a couple more things there. Jesus stands, the Lord, stood near Paul and said, take courage. 
Now, Paul did know some of what was coming in Jerusalem um, over and over again on his journey. He's been warned um, by the Spirit and through particular people. Um, Agabus is the, the named prophet who says, if you go to Jerusalem, they're going to tie you up like this. So Paul knows bad things are coming for him in Jerusalem. But he has long planned to go through Jerusalem and on up to Rome when he's got done with the east. And here, for the first time, Jesus endorses that plan. So far, up until this point, it's only been clear that God's plan takes Paul as far as Jerusalem. Here, Paul gets a real encouragement. As you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. It's like a stamp. Yes, your plan to go to Rome, that's my plan for you to go to Rome as well. You are going to go to Rome. But then we move right into this Jewish plot. And it's remarkable how serious they are about sorting out this Paul guy. Now, imagine you've got a conspiracy of 40 people planning on killing Paul. But Paul's in Roman custody. So when Paul travels around, he travels around with some Roman soldiers chained onto him. If these 40 Jews want to take out Paul, they're picking a serious fight. It's likely that some of them are going to get dead in the process. And even if they don't get dead in the process, if they do kill Paul, well, the Romans aren't just going to put up with it. You can't just kill Roman citizens in Roman custody. There'll be reprisals. These people are really, really het up. They're het up enough to risk their lives to take out Paul. And yet, they're amazingly hypocritical in this. What are they frustrated with Paul for? Breaking the law. What are they going to do? Well, they're asking the, the Sanhedrin to lie to use a false pretext to get Paul back down. And then they're going to murder. Again, it's the same hypocrisy. It's like keeping the law, but breaking it in the process. And then you have this irony again of the, the pagan enemy, this Roman empire, this godless Roman empire that believes all sorts of different um, crazy things come to the rescue of the true Jew from these false Jews. Paul's a Roman citizen. He gets respect. He's just detained, he's protected and then to defend him from this conspiracy you get this huge expedition how many soldiers? 200 soldiers, 200 spearmen 70 horsemen, some people think this is as much as half of the entire Roman army in Jerusalem has taken this one man uh, away to protect him, this Roman pagan enemy is behaving so well and the Jews his own people are out to get him, it's just such a surprising contrast it's a great story, and Paul gets out of it alive, and uh, the story carries on. We'll see how his journey does indeed take him all the way to Rome. But what does this have to say to us? After all, we are not Paul. We, we don't have his calling to take the gospel to Rome. We, we don't face anything like the opposition he did either, thankfully. I don't think you have 40 people in a conspiracy to murder you on your way home tonight. But we do have things in common. You see, God has a plan for us too. Just like he has a plan for Paul. And just like God's plan for Paul is going to succeed, he's going to get to Rome to testify. Well, God's plan for us, that's going to succeed as well. It is unstoppable. But God's plan for Paul, is it opposed? Absolutely. Is there struggle in there? Absolutely. There's opposition but there's encouragement in the middle as well. And the same thing's true when you think about how God's plan for our lives works out. Is there struggle in following God's plan for our lives? Absolutely, there's struggle. If you haven't met a struggle in following God's plan for your life yet, you will, it's coming. But is there encouragement too? 
Absolutely. There's encouragement for us here as well. So our calling to work within God's opposed but unstoppable plan, what is his plan for us? When I talk about calling, I think it's one of these kind of churchy words that sometimes it's quite hard to pin down. What, is it, what does it actually mean? What does a calling look like? Do you need to have an iPhone to get a calling? Do you need a, a word in the sky to get a calling? Do you need to actually have Jesus stand by you and tell you to get a calling? Actually, I'm sure some of you in this room do have a special, particular, specific calling from God. And some of you will know what God wants you to do. Particular things that he has set in your heart, in your life for you to accomplish. Perhaps you're already walking out through that calling. But I think some of you are going to be scratching your heads too, thinking, well, what's God's plan for me? What, what, what does God have in mind for me? Well, he hasn't left us completely in the dark, absent a vision, absent one of these meetings with Jesus. There are two things which absolutely everyone who calls himself a Christian shares as our calling from God. The first one, Jesus calls all of us to follow me. What does he mean when he calls us to follow him? He means be his disciples, be his learners, be his pupils, his apprentices, following him, seeing what he's doing and trying to imitate him, to become more and more like him. That's what discipleship is, becoming more and more like Jesus, trying more and more to imitate him in the way we live. And every Christian shares that calling to become more and more like Jesus. So we've got one calling that really isn't in any question, becoming more like Jesus. We have another one as well. Jesus, in his last words, and last words are important, right? You try and say something special for your last words. Jesus, in his last words, says, go and make disciples. So every Christian has that calling as well, to go and make more learners of Jesus, go and make more imitators, followers of Jesus. So two callings for all of us. Some of you will have more that you know about as well. We're all called to discipleship. We're all called to mission. Let's walk back through this story and see what we can learn from Paul and uh, from the story in the light of that. Well, Paul has one of those kind of out of the frying pan into the fire stories, doesn't he? Think about his trip to Jerusalem. He's in the temple. There's a riot. They're trying to kill him. The Romans rescue him. He makes a speech. There's a riot. They're trying to kill him. The Romans rescue him. They're about to beat him. He says, no, I'm a citizen. He gets rescued. They take him down to the Sanhedrin. He says, one sentence. And there's a riot. They're trying to kill him. He gets rescued. There's a conspiracy against him. They're going to kill him. He gets rescued. This is not what Paul was hoping for when he said, oh, for Jerusalem. He's bringing a collection from all the churches in this area he's been visiting, a collection to encourage and bless and provide for the church in Jerusalem. He's coming back to be with his people, to speak to them and tell them about Jesus. This is not the reception that Paul was hoping for at all. How can it be? Has something gone wrong here? Isn't this Paul's calling from God? Isn't this God's plan for Paul to go to Jerusalem? He's got watching the wrong channel on his heavenly TV. Because Paul is literally on a mission from God here. How can there be struggle when you're on God's mission? Well, I think we need to recognise that struggle is quite hard to interpret, actually. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going the wrong way. I mean, actually, if you read the Bible, there's a good game you can play. You can play spot the good guys 
for whom it all works out smoothly and it's plain sailing and there's no difficulty and there's no struggle. I mean, think through in your mind maybe one or two or three or four different people from the Bible. Think about their stories of good people from the Bible. Do they have it easy? Let's think about Stephen, the first deacon, right? He's a man of faith in the Holy Spirit. How does it work out for him? Makes his first speech in front of a crowd and stoned to death. Not going so well there. Think about David, King David in the Old Testament. God chooses him to be king. How long does it take David to become king? Like 20 years of hiding in caves and being chased from place to place by his enemies? Actually, it's hard to find the good guys in the Bible for whom it all just worked out smoothly, for whom it was all just plain sailing. I think we must have a really peculiar idea of what the normal Christian life looks like when we think that it's straightforward and easy and smooth. We've been reading at home, we've been reading The Pilgrim's Progress. It's one of these great ancient Christian books. That, uh, it, it's a, it's a, an extended allegory about the struggle that is the Christian life. The story's all about how hard it is for this guy called... Christian, it's a very creative name for a Christian. This guy called Christian, how hard it is for him to stay on the narrow path that leads to heaven. A long story of all the difficulties that try and pull him out of the way. And that, I think, is really what we have to be thinking of as the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life, following God's calling, is struggle. It is, I'm sorry, that's not a happy story, it's not a great selling point, this is no marketing presentation. Though I do have to say, Struggle doesn't necessarily mean you're going God's way either, right? What's the archetypal counter story? Jonah. Jonah's on this boat, trying to go the opposite way to what God has told him, and there's a storm, and uh, they're rowing in the storm, and it's getting harder. And uh, they throw the cargo overboard, and it's getting harder. And um, the harder they try to get back, it's just not working. There's a real struggle. Is Jonah going God's way, and it's just pushing through this struggle? No. No, of course not. So, struggle doesn't necessarily mean you're going God's way. It's not quite that straightforward, but rule of thumb, fork in the road, easy way, hard way, God's way. Afraid so. Let's think about this in the light of the two callings we're talking about. In the light of the calling to discipleship, this calling to become more like Jesus, do you feel like it's hard to change? Do you feel like it's a, it's a struggle? Do you, do you know things you do that are wrong? Do you have sins that you're working on that you want to see out of yourself and it's a struggle and a fight to get rid of them? Do they keep coming back? You thought you staked it to the ground and it's like zombie back again, coming after you again? Struggle in following God's calling. It's not a novelty, meaning you've taken a wrong turn. Actually, opposition is it's completely unsurprising. Remember, we have an enemy We have an enemy who is out to see us stay the same, who's out to see us not change at all, who's out to see us go right off track. Remember, we have within us the flesh that's pulling the wrong way. So struggle in discipleship, it's what we should expect. Struggle to change, to follow God, to become more like Jesus. It's what we should expect rather than a nasty surprise. Or think about this with mission in view, okay, with talking to people about Jesus, with sharing the gospel. Well, when you think about the risk you take to talk to someone about Jesus, when I think about opening my mouth, what do I think? I think they're going to think I'm stupid. I think, do you know, they're probably not going to talk to me anymore. 
Or even, I think, they might actually make fun of me. Or even when I'm ready to talk, but I actually have this wrestle to try and get the words out of my mouth. Do you ever feel like your mouth has got like bubblegum in it when it comes to saying that crucial? You're about to actually say something that's going to move the conversation onto a spiritual topic. It's going to push the boat out a little bit, and your jaw's kind of stuck to it. Is it a struggle to engage in mission? Yeah. And that's normal. That's not a novelty. That's not a surprise. That doesn't mean that um, there are some evangelists out here for whom this is just so straightforward. And obviously it's not my job because it's hard for me and a struggle. And I can just leave it to them. No, struggle is normal. Struggle is normal in following God's calling. In following God's calling to mission. So there's opposition to God's plan for Paul. Real opposition over and over again. There's opposition to us as we try and walk out our callings. But what else do we find here? Well, put yourself in Paul's shoes. How are you going to feel? You had had high hopes for this Jerusalem trip. You've been planning it for a long time. You've been asking people to get their money ready. You've um, been raising collections, talking about your hopes for this trip. You finally get there, and there are all these people trying to kill you and fight against you. We we had this um, recently. We... uh, we got a present as a family, and um, one of my guys shook the box, and it rattled in that very particular way. I don't know if you're familiar with the way that Lego rattles when you shake a box, but Lego has a kind of particular rattle. That's Lego inside that present. We unwrapped it, and it wasn't. It was something different, something we really weren't that interested in. That sort of disappointment when you had these expectations and this hope, and it turns out not to be like that. So Paul is going to be feeling significantly discouraged here. What happens? The Lord stands by Paul. He's done this repeatedly for Paul. Paul talks about on the Damascus Road, when Paul became a Christian in the first place, he ran into Jesus there. Paul, when he's telling his story, talks about how when he went back to Jerusalem, right after he was converted in the first time, God stood by him there too. And then he talks about another time, a few weeks ago, we were meeting that here in Corinth, where the Lord spoke to Paul. He says, don't be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, I am with you. No one's going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. Now, it is worth looking at the difference here. So the first time round, the Lord says, flee, nobody's going to listen to you in Jerusalem. The second time in Corinth, the Lord says, nobody's going to hurt you, it's going to be okay. What does he say here? Take courage. As you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. It's not safety. It's not an escape. It doesn't sound that appetizing. But think about the Lord coming to stand by Paul for a moment. Now, I think often we have this picture of God as someone far off, The bearded guy up on the shiny chair in heaven. Disinterested, really, frankly. He's busy running the universe. He's got the matter of keeping the planets spinning and arranging quarks correctly. And uh, he's really pretty busy with that stuff and doesn't have a whole lot of time and interest for little old me. That picture's all wrong. That's a lie. Because amazing and remarkable, actually as impossible as it sounds... God sees and knows and cares for us as individuals. There are many of us, like there are enough of us in this room that I would struggle to care 
individually for you. But imagine all the Christians in the world at once. And God can do it. He can care for every single one of us as an individual. He knew exactly what was going on with Paul at this moment. And he manifested himself to encourage Paul. Now, he didn't have to. His plan was absolutely certainly going to succeed anyway. God's plan for his church to reach out, God's plan for his gospel to go to Rome, these things were all definitely going to happen anyway. So why did God come and stand by Paul? It is because he loved Paul as an individual. He cared about Paul, not just about saving Paul's soul. He didn't have to stand by Paul to save his soul. Not just about seeing his mission accomplished in the gospel and uh, this message go to rulers in Rome. That would have happened anyway. That's not why he had to stand by Paul. He stood by Paul because he cared how Paul felt. That's remarkable. That is remarkable. God is so much more aware of and involved in our lives than we notice. Don't you feel that tendency to think he's far off, he's distant, he's busy with other things, he's got bigger fish to fry? No, but he cares about us as individuals. Now, how might God encourage us? Visions of the Lord standing by you? Perhaps. I'm sure some people have seen those. That's wonderful. But he encourages us through his word, doesn't he? You can only do that if we read it. There's a good reason to read regularly. We try and make it a part of our routine. Just like brushing your teeth or washing the clothes and read the Bible. How does he encourage us? He encourages us through his son. When you think about God becoming man, coming into the world as Jesus to rescue us, what does that show us? That shows us that God cares. That should encourage us. John, one of Jesus' apostles, writes, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So we should be encouraged just by the fact of Jesus coming. I think we can find encouragement in the world he's made on a sunny day like today when the sky is blue and it's warm and nice. Isn't it easy to be encouraged by the goodness of what God has made? But I think mostly God encourages us day to day through his people, through each other. I mean, how many times has somebody said something to you at just the right moment? How many times has somebody had that little pickup that you needed, noticed where you were and um, showed you that they cared, told you that God cared. I think that's something we should be careful to reciprocate. It's something we can do for each other. I think it's something we could even do for each other this evening. I think the other way God encourages us is through his track record. If we look back over our lives, can't you see that God has been faithful? Can't you see that God has been good? Can't you see that God has been involved and for you and at work? Can you see that? Often it's easier in the rear view mirror actually to spot where God's hands are, where he's been at work, than it is at the time when you're in the middle of it. Now when I look back at some of the things that happened to us, I'm like, 
There he was. There he was. There he was doing. And we can be, we can be encouraged by that. David, uh, writing in the Psalms to Israel, he says, they believed his promises and sang his praise. Then he goes on to say, they soon forgot what he had done and didn't wait for his plan to unfold. We need to be people who do not forget what God has done. That's how we can be encouraged, by remembering that God has been at work in our lives. So two things. Opposition to God's plan for Paul. Encouragement for Paul in the middle of this. Two things for us. Opposition in God's callings to us, but encouragement in them as well. Encouragement too. But there's more here too. Um, There Paul is, encouraged by Jesus. He's going to get to Rome after all. You must also testify in Rome. Paul's like, yes! Going to make it. Plan to go to Rome. Going to get there. Fantastic. What happens next? He hears of a conspiracy against his life. It's serious. 40 people. They have a good chance of getting him. The way he reacts, I think, has something to say for us as well. Notice what Paul doesn't do here is, having had his vision, having had his encouragement, just sit back and go, well, that's okay, because I know I'm going to get to Rome. God's calling for me is definitely going to take me to Rome. In fact, I'm just going to let go and let God. God's got this one. No, that's not what Paul does, is it? What does he do when he hears about the conspiracy? He takes action. When he finds out about the plot. We've been watching a lot of Bear Grylls recently. Have you met Bear Grylls? He's this amazing survival guy who goes to crazy places and survives. And you know, he does things like he gets some, he, he makes himself into a castaway on some remote island in the middle of nowhere. And Bear Grylls is a Christian and he talks about it reasonably often. Does he pray? De- definitely he prays. Does he pray to God to protect him and rescue him? Absolutely. He makes references to God protecting him a lot. Does he just say, it's okay. God will rescue me when he washes up on the island shore. Does he make himself a comfy shelter and lie back and just wait and see what happens? No. No. He survives every time by finding some disgusting creature and ripping its head off and then gobbling down the gloopy insides and going, but it's got lots of protein. And then then carry on. Or he survives by building a fire out of two twigs and a bit of rice. Or, or maybe he, you know, takes some bamboo and turns it into a kayak or, or, or forms a signal fire out of dried palm leaves and dust. I don't know, but he takes action as well as trusting God and Paul's there. Paul takes action to see God's plan succeed. He doesn't just sit back. Now, clearly, God could carry out his plans without us. God wants somebody to testify in Rome about Jesus. Fine, he could send an angel. Did he or did he not send an angel to talk to Paul? He did. He could have just sent an angel to Rome. He didn't need Paul to do this. He chose to involve Paul in doing this. And he chooses to involve us as well in working out our callings. He chooses to have a part for us to play. Why? Well, I don't know. I don't know. I think, I think in part, that having our part to play in this makes us feel more valuable. It's like having our our little Elizabeth, she's three, help us in the kitchen. Sometimes she comes and helps Heather make muffins. 
and I use the word help in the loosest possible sense. Generally, it's um, more of an obstruction than an encouragement, but she feels loved. She loves doing it. Maybe that's what's going on when God uses us. But again, let's take this back to the callings we share, to discipleship and mission, okay? What does Paul take in action say to us? Well, God is certainly at work in your discipleship, in making you more like Jesus. Certainly, he's working on you now, all the way from when you became a follower of Jesus to now. He's working on you by the power of his Holy Spirit, changing you to be more like Jesus. He is transforming you. Does that mean you have nothing to do? That you can just sit back and enjoy the view. You're just a a passenger on God's heavenly sanctification jet with a window seat watching the clouds swish by. Now, Paul understood exactly this. He writes to one of his churches he set up. He advises them. He says, My dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good promise. So there's the two hands. God is working on us by his spirit, transforming us and changing us. We have to work that out. We have work to do. Becoming more like Jesus requires effort from us. It requires us to grit our teeth and choose not to bite back. It requires us to grit our teeth And let go of our plans for the day when something comes up that needs us. It requires us to keep the confidences we've been entrusted with rather than share them for the delight of gossip. There's work for us to do in discipleship. And there's work for us to do in mission, this other calling as well. That's clearer really, isn't it? That it's a place that we have action. When I think about my calling to mission. I used to work in an office. I worked in the same office with the same people pretty much for five years. Now they all knew I was a Christian. I tried, I tried very hard to conduct myself in an exemplary way in front of them. I tried hard to be scrupulously always doing what was right, carefully telling the truth. Um, do you know, no one ever came to my desk and asked me, what must I do to be saved? just didn't happen to me. In the end, as I was leaving, I felt, no, I've got to take action here. I've got to take action. So on, on the very last day, I'm not an example here. I'm a terrible example. Do not emulate me. I gave everyone a, a book, The Reason for God. I just threw it at them. It hit one of them because my throne was so bad. But I, I threw this book and I said, read this. Uh, I think it's really important. Oh, I'm running. And I ran away and hid. I should have done much more than that. I'm no shining example of action and mission, but the point stands. It is God's plan that the world learns about Jesus. But he's chosen to involve us in that mission. He's chosen to have us be a part of that. Now, he could do it without us. He certainly could. He often does. Have you heard any of these amazing stories from the Middle East? There are, there are Muslims, I think quite a lot of Muslims who, out of the blue, have amazing visions of Jesus talking to them or angels. So God can reach out to people without us just fine. He certainly can. But we can't just sit back and assume God's got it. Like Paul, we've got to act. We have to work within God's plan. That is his calling for us. So there's opposition to God's plan for Paul. 
But there's encouragement that the plan is definitely going to succeed. And yet there's still work for Paul to do to see that pan out. We, as well, we have this same opposition in our callings from God. We have this same encouragements that we can take in this calling and we've got this same work to do to see his plans come about. Now, we know the end of Paul's story, right? God accomplishes what God plans. Paul does go to Rome. He gets to testify in front of critically important people. Because of the mission work of the early church, there's a church here today, a church virtually everywhere, all the way to the ends of the earth. What about us and our callings? Well, in discipleship, it's inevitable that you and me were going to be conformed to the image of his son, the Bible tells us. The picture is of kind of being squeezed and pressed into this mold, like Play-Doh. The mold is Jesus. That's what we're going to look like when we're done, when God's done pushing us in there with his thumb. We're going to be like Jesus. We're going to be patient. We're going to be kind. We're going to be gentle. We're going to be joyful. We're going to be full of self-control. We are going to be all of these things in the end. Listen to what Paul writes in a letter he sent when he made his plan to go to Rome. He wrote to Rome ahead of him and he said, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then can we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So we should have that confidence that God's plan for our discipleship is unstoppable. It will succeed. What about mission? Well, we've got confidence here too. Listen to Jesus on this one. Jesus says, All those the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I'll never drive away. I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. I will lose none of all those he's given me, but raise them up on the last day. My Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. God's mission can't fail. Even with lousy missionaries like me on the team, God's mission can't fail. All that the Father has given to Jesus will come with that same absolute certainty. Now Paul finished the race. He got all the way to the end. And you will too. So be encouraged. Be encouraged as you struggle. Be encouraged as you work. Because your calling is unstoppable. Why don't we take a moment just to reflect quietly and I'm going to ask Lewis if you'd come up and lead us in song to respond after that.